Welcome, one, welcome all, to Pros and Cons, a River Do's and River Don'ts project, where we take down, bit by bloody bit, the official Riverdale tie-in novels by Nicole Ostow, and today we're continuing our journey with Get Out of Town! Starting with chapter 15, I am your host, Quinn. I am your other host, Rob. And how you feeling about this pile we've got in front of us, Rob? Quinn, I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm really bad. <laughs> these these chapters gave me cancer. Oops. Um, it's, it's even worse <laughs> than last time. Because when you keep doing the same shit over and over again, you have less and less of an excuse. Yeah, uh, you want to talk about second verse, same as the first. Do you just want to get started talking about chapter 15? I mean, yeah, the theme will develop quickly, but don't worry. Don't worry. There will be both, like, needless Stephen King references and a return of the not-funny humiliation fetish. So that's something that's like a solid through line that we can we can pull ourselves along by and and uh it's our north star Quinn something like that but yeah let's let's get into it there's enough bullshit here that I'm going to have to like have to keep the book handy there's some things that need to be done justice but the only way we can do that is to yes crawl letter by filthy, sodden, garbagey letter across these pages, so let's do that. Chapter 15, It's a Betty Chapter. Betty begins by opining, and I've said this before, but I'm saying it again, to her diary. She's writing in her diary some fucking how. I, I That's repetitive, but it's it bears repeating. It's confusing, and, at best. It's just prose. It's not a diary. It just says Dear Diary at the top and it has a different font. But like she, I feel like the diary thing kind of well, almost was like done justice formally earlier on. And I'm going to admit that my brain is sludge now. Like, I don't know if we're talking about the day before or get out of town. But like, it felt like it was just a poorly handled formal conceit of it being a diary. By now, it's just out the window. Like, it doesn't feel well, like at all like it's a document right so there's this thing i feel like with the day before where there's this feeling of betty is out of town she's in la she's sort of documenting her weird majestic summer away right it stops holding together really fucking quickly though and i'm now realizing how wild it is that each of these starts with dear diary (laughs) <laughs> because many of these are, in fact, more or less contiguous from where she left off, or oh, yeah. at least within the same day. You would think that you would sit down and you would write this, and you would be logging the events of a single day. But does she say Dear Diary when she does, like, an hourly update on her life? Yeah. Dear Diary. And it's not dated or timed. No, We don't have any not. of that. I'm in the toilet on Riverdale High. I'm making poop. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And like, well, actually, it would be. Dear are you diary. pooping in there? Cheryl asked bitchily. Well, and I was like, going to say, yeah, it's <laughs> it's not even like it feels like with this format, it's dear diary. It's a an account of the last ninety minutes of her life, and then the last thing she says is, "I am in the bathroom and I am making poop." Pretty much. Uh, again, it is literally dear diary, and then present tense, first person narrative. That's it. 
Betty is for some reason like moment by moment perfect recalling and not summarizing in any way as she writes in her diary like a uh, you know YA author trying to knock out a novel over a weekend uh, is that uh, she and Jughead quickly realize that the power outage is no big deal because of how finicky the infrastructure in the mountains tends to be. Jughead's example uh, list of examples of what could cause a power outage included the temperature dropping, and I quote, a fraction of a percentage. Temperature, of course, as we all know, being something that is measured in percentage. Famous, in fact, for being able to be measured uh, in percentages. I'd say it's about like 78% right now. Alone near 55%. It's ridiculous. And this, I don't know how things work train, which again is accidentally very similar to Riverdale, uh, goes on as Betty spends a bunch of time in page count, just, just, just blast and fluff about like what the cabin looks like inside, uh, as they explore it in the dark, uh, instead of just sitting and waiting for the power, uh, to come back on. And she says, what felt so strange to me here, in fact, is when Archie was going through, it was this sort of rushed, uh, it was this sort of very rushed description, and I at least got the sense that they were quickly moving through this dark space. But here, it's like they're just shining their cell phone flashlights, except they say not to do that, and just getting this really vivid description. I know she's been there before, so she probably remembers. But why the fuck is she writing this in her diary? Why is she writing, like, this, like, long-winded description of the objects in the rooms and, like, the decor and stuff in her diary? It's just for pages. That's obviously the only reason. But she goes on to say that, quote, a widow's walk ran the length of the upstairs where the bedroom suites were. No, it doesn't, Betty. A widow's walk did no such thing. That's not what a widow's walk is. A widow's walk is a railed platform on a roof. You don't have a widow's walk on the second floor of a house where bedrooms are. That is fucking nonsense. Is she just talking about like a half floor upstairs then? I don't know. She's not talking about the words she's saying. That's what I know for sure. Oh, certainly not. Anyway, that's very Riverdale, too. Just not knowing how things work or what they are. It's great. Uh, In discussing how creepy the lodge is, the Stephen King references predictably spatter thickly across the pages with the Green Mile, The Shining, again, and 1408, all referenced in the space of two paragraphs. Sure, sure is. And we... We latch on. We kind of sink our teeth into the shining one and don't let go uh, for a little bit. Like it and continues to be discussed. Is I have, I have a question. I've never read or watched The Green Mile, but I got the sense that it was more of like a drama piece. It's not it a, a horror f- story because she specifically says on the heels of my admonishment about Jug's horror reference. Oh no, yeah. she she makes that, but it still sort of implies that The Green Mile might be a horror story, which it is super not. Right. Everything I knew about it's like, oh, this is... It's a sentimental magic realism drama story about, like, racial injustice. R- right. It's more like Shawshank. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of, it's Shawshank with a little bit of magic in it is sort of the feel. Um, yeah, it's... Classic horror story. Yeah, you know. Ooh. I mean, the horror story is the, <laughs> the prison <state>. system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird for someone who's obsessed with Stephen King. Like that was a clumsy reference. And I refuse to give Austin the credit of being like, well, Betty would make a less accurate Stephen King reference than Jughead would. 
I don't. I'm not. I'm not willing to concede that level of uh, subtlety. With how little variance there is in character tone and language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Anyway, oh Jesus Christ! This next part, I have to go directly to the text to even handle it. Um, do do do. Okay, so they're at the room. Ah, they're at the door. Their explorations take them to the door that leads to the basement. The one that we know for sure is like completely locked down and impassable. Right. Oh. Rob, are you going to talk about the part where they have the conversation that we had last week? That's only part of it. This this is such a carnival of garbage here. Uh, uh, that that's what we should have called the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect. Uh, come one, come all. Uh, they're talking about The Shining. Of course they are. <laughs> and they're looking at this door. Rob, at this point, I think that you would do better to inform us when they're not talking about The Shining <laughs> than when they are. Oh, God, it's a fucking coin toss, isn't it? Uh, I'm just so, saying, if you're going to earmark one of them, it might as well I be mean, when they're not yeah. talking about The Shining. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so they're looking at the door to the basement, and it's <laughs> it's a door, and it's all big and heavy and wood. <laughs> uh, a little bit imposing, I'll give you that, Jughead said, but it's definitely not Room 237, Shining reference, so we don't have to panic just yet. Uh, then the door won't open, and Betty says, can I panic now? Jug tugged at the edge of his crown beanie, shaking free, won a wild lock of hair, suddenly realization dawned on his adorable face. It's a panic room! How did you figure we, that one out? It's locked? And we used the word panic multiple times in the dialogue leading up to him trying to open the door as a way to try to Trojan horse retroactively memetically justify Jughead's realization that the door that won't open is it's because it's a panic room. So this is a type of logic that I'm I'm familiar with in as much as it reminds me of a story of my cousin when he was maybe four or five years old. It was shortly after my grandfather had passed, and my grandfather's name was Wayne. And my cousin was obsessed with Batman at this point. Okay. And someone said the name Wayne, referring to my grandfather, and I could see this realization play across his eyes as they went wide, and my cousin goes, Wayne? Bruce Wayne. <laughs> dad? Your dad is Batman. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh -huh. And that is exactly the kind of energy that Jughead is bringing here. Like, they literally use the word panic in conversation in a very ham-fisted way by the author, so that it's it's a bluff. It's a bluff against the reader. Like, I want Jughead to know that this is a panic room, so I'm going to have them use the word panic so they're thinking about it, so that's what his mind jumps to. Like, rather than there being any, like, actual process going on. Uh Right, so the, my other inclination is that Jughead is a video game character, and he walks up and he presses the interact button and goes, hmm, it appears to be locked from the other side. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a thing that you generally know when you interact with a door. Yep. But it gets better, Quinn. This, this path goes deeper and darker. Because Betty questions Jughead about there being a panic room in the basement. And I'm just, I, again, I, I apologize, but I have to go directly to the text. She says, is there a panic room in the basement? And Jughead says, no. Well, yes. Sort of. Sorry. 
What I mean is that I'm pretty sure the entire basement functions like a panic room. Work with me here. It would make sense. Hiram Lodge is insanely rich. Insanely rich people are often also insanely paranoid, and this le and that leads to insanely convoluted, complicated high-end home security systems. My best guess is the basement door is set to lock when the power cuts off. Like, all right, there's there's a lot there. I also, <laughs> We're not even done, but yeah, feel free just to hit the brakes on me with here. A, a little bit of color commentary on Jughead's choice of words here, because I feel like "work with me here" is a phrase you hear in two situations. One, you're spinning a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Two, your wife's about to leave you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, it's this is Ostow being like, please, audience, please forgive me. Like, yeah, she is she is pleading to the audience, please work with me or don't think about it too much. Yeah, it's so bad. And yeah, he's rich and he's paranoid, which means that he would have a highly complicated and weirdly idiosyncratic security system such as the one that we have described in previous chapters. Uh, and, and I know that because it makes sense. It makes sense, you guys. It makes sense. And You know what rich people are like. Then Betty says, what if you're on the wrong side of the door when that happens, though? Like we did last time. Yes, this is them starting on a conversation that mirrors what we discussed last time we met. I'm sure there's a code that the lodges know, like an override if that happens. But we're not lodges. Veronica wasn't expecting an outage, and Hiram Lodge isn't expecting us here at all in the first place, so no override. So, this doesn't address the issue. Like, if somebody's rushing at you with a knife or a gun or something, and, like, the power goes off, and you just can't flee into the basement, and you have to, like, wait and put in the code while they murder you, it's just, again, we Jughead tries to fast-talk the audience into retroactively accepting that it makes sense how the basement panic room works without addressing any of the actual logical problems with it. Like... The fact that it's not something that the person voluntarily activates, it still stands unexplained. It's very funny to me, because what this scene is, is Jughead walking out all the f flaws that we, we pointed out that are pretty readily apparent in this, and then basically just looks at you and says, and yet, here we are. <laughs> it makes what sense because I say so. What are you going to do about it, bitch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I was I was flabbergasted here, and I we really are don't, so not many pages into this. I really don't think I've ever seen someone try to engage in that sort of literary fast talk, where like that's not the point of the character, right? Um, it, it's wild. Yeah, there's some there's some serious flim flam being perpetrated by the characters, um, <laughs> or rather through the characters by the author. Um, anyway, they talk about Hiram Lodge a little bit, and I just want to point out a small example of something that's very Ostow, which is, uh, which is a technique that I like to call two lines for the price of one. Betty asks Jughead how he knows so much about Hiram's mindset, and Jughead says, Hiram Lodge is basically Bruce Wayne. Ah, good callback. Like if Bruce Wayne were evil, right? He laughed. Maybe Lex Luthor. So, what he means to say is Hiram Lodge is like Lex Luthor, but he just says... He's like a character who isn't Lex Luthor if he were more like Lex Luthor. Like Lex Luthor. And like we have to we have to spiral our way in from like a rich character to a rich evil character to the person who we actually should have referenced if we had functioning brains. He's like playing a game of like linguistic tank wars, trying to hit 
the thing that makes sense to say, but we get the whole process out loud because that makes it a paragraph instead of like one sentence. And there's this thing where that that yarn he's spinning might be realistically believable as something someone would say, like if someone was just like reaching, trying to trying to find the thing. But this book isn't written with like a realist sensibility toward dialogue. This is not a mumblecore book. No, absolutely not. And so it's really weird. But yeah, she's like, oh, well, I got two lines out of that, so. Hey, hey. Um. And then we fucking go and do it. The characters are separated. So we get to experience the power outage delay of plot again, just with two different characters talking about bullshit from the past. Bughead rhapsodize about how crazy it is that they got together and that they're basically in charge of a gang now. So they're just relitigating character development from season two in the middle of this crisis, just to fill page time. The diary entry, diary entry, reminding again, then describes sort of in summary that they reminisce about everything that's happened since Veronica came to town. But oh, we're not done. Our torment is not nearly at an end. Ostow has such sights to show us. Jughead calls up a specific memory from shortly after Veronica became friends with the rest of the main four, and we get another fucking flashback! This one's in Betty's diary. She writes a flashback in her diary, in the middle of reporting moment by moment what's happening. (laughs) And I gotta tell you, this flashback raises just about as many questions about sequencing and timing as the first one. Yeah, uh yeah, you we'll we'll need to we'll need to try to make sense of that, but let's 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 get the big summary out of the way. The main four visit a friend's ah the main four visit a friend of Veronica's in the big city, in the big apple, the city that never sleeps, New York City, home of really, really shitty police. Things are very big and they are very city like. Veronica's friend is a complete asshole, and there was a miscommunication about invitations to some event or other for later in the evening, so Betty and Jughead get left out, though quite willingly, as they are excited to go do tourist stuff in New York City. They see an art house theater getting ready to be torn down, and they talk about movie theaters, and so then they talk about movies. Hold, okay, hold on, that movie theater tear was pretty fucking wild, though? Uh, maybe it's because I live in a city where we have both a landmark and an Angelica theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's weird that he's just like, <laughs> it, it's very season one cover girl lipstick product placement. Yeah. Um, like, I'm genuinely surprised that when he's talking about the Angelica theater, he's not like, they have a quite impressive selection of snacks, including <laughs> baked goods, which are sometimes put onto your popcorn or chips. And all the seats are leather recliners. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Really channeling some season one energy here for some reason. Uh, and the landmark Ken here uh, about six blocks away from where I live just shuttered recently. So mm-hmm. tragic. They used to have yeah. uh, monthly screenings of The Room, Miyazaki uh, like film series. It was, it was a great little theater. I'm sad to see it go. Yeah, it sucks. It's like, um, I don't know. There's, um, it's like we have a large-scale problem having something to do with money and businesses. It's, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, huh. Uh, anyway. Let's just move on. Uh, yeah, so they talk about movie theaters, which means that they then transition into talking about movies. Then they go to a bookstore, and then they eat. And the burgers are not as good as those burgers, which can be found at Pops. Then they visit Central Park, and then they visit the building where John Lennon was shot, and Jughead uh, displays a lack of knowledge about how John Lennon was a violent, misogynist piece of shit. Right. I mean, speaking of which, 
shortly before this, when they're going on this weird tear about when Harry met Sally, Jughead arches an eyebrow at Betty and says, So you really think men and women can just be friends? <sighs> Which, I don't know. I didn't think that when I was 16. I, I feel like, based on Jughead's characterization, he wouldn't. He's friends with Veronica, isn't he? Yeah, like, that's part of the... <laughs> yes, I know, I, I know, I know. Like, and what about the, like, 600 women who are in his gang, including, like, Cheryl and Tony at this right. point? Like, he's literally the leader of, like, a very close-knit community group involving people of all genders. Jughead's on one in these chapters. I don't know what the fuck's going on. But anyway, anyway. In this chapter, Jughead is just on one in, like, a really weird way. Like, there's part of it that's believable in terms of he's a shitty 16-year-old with, like, Obsessed with being an outsider and an outcast and things like that. Right, and so, like, he has weird ideas about New York. Yeah. Um, He's like, I like the part with rats. Oh, take me to New York before it got gentrified in the 80s. I want that 70s New York. I want that fucking taxi driver shit. Yeah, definitely. Jughead would absolutely be terrified to step foot in that New York. Yeah. Uh, Not all of us have the courage to be the Joker. Um, Jughead thinks he does, though. It's so obvious. He's got huge Joker energy. Gigantic Joker. But, like, the real Joker energy, not what people who like the Joker think Joker energy is. Yeah, that's Betty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, half the... Yeah. I mean, in these books, everyone is kind of always on the verge of going absolute Joker mode. Yeah, um, but like in the show, Betty's I, definitely. I think, I think you're right. Danced on the knife's edge of Jokerfication. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. Uh, the differences in what parts and features of New York City uh, they like is then used as a clumsy metaphor for how Betty and Jughead come from different worlds and Betty's anxiety that they might not fit together. Then they worry about what will happen to the main four when high school ends. And then uh, Varchi and their rich, shitty friends show up and the flashback is over. Fuck. That flashback was literally goddamn nothing. It was nothing. Well, the, the thing that's really weird to me, like that's absolutely incomprehensible to me, is that they introduce a conflict in this in this flashback about the worlds that they're from, about them not being sure that they're going the same directions with their future. You mean the conflict that's already been like heavily chewed on in both seasons of the TV show and like that they have resolved? I, which I would also say is just not present in the book really until now. Yep. But then she just drops it and then they it's pick just, back it's up in, a in the present it's when like, it's oh, not hey, a problem anymore. It's there just, was conflict back then. I'll write about it a little bit. No, it, it has no resolve. relevance to my story, but whatever. <laughs> Nicole Ostow's a bullshit artist and there is no story. She's not telling us a story. Like, there's definitely the last chapter. She at least spun like a self-contained yarn, even if it didn't make that much sense. Yeah, ultimately one... it fell apart under like moderate scrutiny, but like this just isn't anything. It's just a list of things in New York. With occasionally them being like, I... I came here as a child. Well, I think it's stupid. <laughs> what the fuck is this? So It's not my a- fault your murderer dad fed you hamburgers that taste like ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. What is this? Uh, except he wouldn't have known that. Yeah, I, I realized that after I made the joke, but, but it was too but good hey, to pass it. Like, it's staying in. It's staying in. 
Uh, doing some math here, Quinn, as I want to occasionally do. They arrived at Lodge Lodge on page 139, and the second flashback ends at 194. That is 55 pages, 19.4% of the runtime of the entire book is spent being at Lodge Lodge but not doing anything. Right? That's I, I did that calculation at this point when the light at the end of the tunnel was visible, when I could and see that I, they were coming out of the flashback. I sort of hate to be the read-another-book person, but this sounds tremendously to me like the art of a little book that people might be familiar with called Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, where a large portion of the book is just dedicated to bullshit nonsense, nothing happening, and a large number of largely irrelevant flashbacks. Harry Potter is not a good series of books. It's awful. It's bad. It's very bad. Uh, there were two good ones for, like, young adults or kids or whatever. The first one and the third one. That is the correct. Second, the second one was a holding pattern. It was just a lesser, kind of a lesser copy of the first one as the series hadn't yet figured out what it was actually trying to do. The fourth one is overlong and marks a, an, inf- an inflection point where she tried to, like, age up the themes and tone of the books along with the audience. Uh, and it was the most successful out of the, like, three and a half books that are sort of, like, darker. But it's it's just kind of long and bloated and clumsy. Mostly, mostly just sets up, like, well, bad, serious things can and probably will happen later. Right, and I and mean, then the rest of you the can't talk is... about Goblet of Fire without mentioning how there's like a weird half subplot in there about Hermione fighting for slaves' rights and then being told by every single figure in authority in the book that they just like it that way. Yeah, they just like and being slaves, not challenging that at Silly all. Silly child. Yep, yep. Uh, and then the rest of the series, the the final three books are all trash. God fucking damn it. Hello. This fucking internet. I don't yeah, know if it's, it's that I need to update my browser again. I, I would love know. to live in a world where everything doesn't need updated on a fucking weekly basis. Yeah, no kidding. And then it doesn't tell you that it needs updated. Instead, nope. it just starts crashing all your shit. Yep, it's great. Uh, but yeah, then the, the the final three books are all trash. Real, real bad. Yeah, they all, they all suck. Uh, but this isn't a Harry Potter podcast. No, if you I want to listen die. to a good Harry Potter podcast with a similar format, I'd recommend listening to the Shrieking Shack. Do they? This is this is a genuine question. This is not me like you know uh, spinning something from the podcast. Like, do they know that the books are bad? Oh yes, they they are they are lapsed fans, and oh, they come God. to it. Put it in my veins. It's really really good. Um, yeah, that's our plug. I've not listened to it, but if it's a lapsed fan uh, podcast that has any similar energy to Riverdews and Riverdones tackling Harry Potter, like I, you know, I'm fighting the good fight as much as I can with Riverdale. Yeah, no, I'm uh, glad that someone is out there dealing with the, you know, Queen of All Karens and uh, Adeline analytically that they basically are exactly in agreement with you. Like Sorcerer's Stone was a good book. Azkaban's a good book. Good Chamber children's of... books. Right. Too successful for their own good, because then, like, no editor could touch her work, and she just disappeared up her own stupid ass and wrote a lot more books. I'd recommend listening to it. I'd also recommend maybe starting with some of their later book analyses, because uh, it takes them a second to find their feet. But, like, if you know the shape of Harry Potter, it's pretty yeah. easy to just jump in there. They just started book seven. They're, like, three also, episodes into book seven. I don't remember seven. what it's called, but there's a 
podcast that covers the Redwall books from a communist perspective, and Holy it's shit. the best. God, they, I, it should just be called Red Wall. I think it's called the Red Wall or something like that. But it's uh, it's great. I think that they're a little slow at updating. I don't know if they're still updating, but like what they put out was pretty great. Anyway, yeah, we emerge from the second giant stupid flashback on page one hundred ninety four. You know what happens next, Quinn? You know what happens next? Then they fucking don't move the plot forward. They decide to turn around, go back outside, and clean up the pile of dead birds. (laughs) Archie doesn't believe that murder is the collective noun for crows because he's an idiot. That was worth spending some time on. They clean up the dead birds, and then they decide to take turns showering and get some food to eat. Why? (laughs) By the way, this was the part where my diagnosis of cancer came. (sighs) Betty showers and gets into another Adderall freakout in the bathroom and hears her phone go off with the lollipop ringtone that she had for the Black Hood number in season two. What the fuck is this? Is she having hallucinations from Adderall? Does she just, or does she just have that? fucking ringtone is every unknown caller's ringtone now which is crazy what's going on it really does seem to like double down on it being a hallucination as the section closes it it sure does uh do we want to go to quinn's adderall corner again (laughs) i'm there's nothing for me to say here that hasn't already been said honestly i'm pretty sure that adderall's not hallucinogenic I have never hallucinated on it, and basically, if anyone's ever just gotten, like, real riled up on coffee, and, like, they don't have ADHD, it's probably pretty similar to that. I mean, it's it's stronger stuff. Yeah, worse like, for it's your like heart. a real intense, uh, real intense up. Um, so it might make you feel anxious, and if you're prone to, like, being oversensitive to things... You might like hear something and say like, "Oh, was that like something skittering or whatever?" As far as far as I know, no hallucinations though. Like, <laughs> no, God no. <sighs> Fuck's sake. Chapter sixteen, Jughead. We switch to Jughead's perspective during Betty's shower, and we go through the exact same exchange when he knocks on the door. Uh, Betty thought that he was reacting to the phone ringing, but the phone indeed may not have rung. But like, so we're just doing it again. We're just repeating the content, the non-content, but like there's, there sort of could be some value here because this sort of uh, verifies that the phone did not ring because Jughead does not appear to hear it ring. Right. I mean, even though it's nonsense that she's having hallucinations because of Adderall, which is what the book is implying. She needs to be having, if she's having hallucinations, it's for a different reason. It might be sleep deprivation. But like they go through the same exchange, but they use different words. They say the stuff that's like basically the same gist. But they say it differently, as though Ostow couldn't be fucked to look literally one or two pages ago to see what the characters said to each other. Mm-hmm. We needlessly repeat content with yet another POV character split, but we don't, like, bother to keep things consistent. Even though we want to say them over and over and over again, we can't actually make them stay consistent. You can't say the same thing. That would be trite. <sighs> so, there's a part of this conversation is so weird. Like... 
Jughead mentions the welcome wagon pile of bloody birds. Some people might find that a little bit stressful. Betty says, I'm fine. Some people aren't from Riverdale, remember? We have experience with these sort of things there. I read that and I didn't understand and then I tried to understand. I just accepted my lack of understanding and moved on. So Betty appears to suggest that she got some sort of welcome wagon of dead bird piles. When she first arrived in Riverdale... But she's always been in Riverdale. Betty's family, by all accounts that I can see, originated in Riverdale. The Coopers are, like, part of the founding of the fucking, like, mining camp that became Riverdale. There's no indication that Betty in any way did not originate in Riverdale, and, like, her family did for generations. What in the fuck is she saying? I could not tell you. Yeah, we just have to accept that this is just, like, a half page of absolute nothingness that makes no sense. Like, it's just, the text is descending into madness. Anyway, Jughead decides to investigate Hiram's study and compares something like the bar cart or something. The syntax is unclear what he's actually referencing, but you guessed it, he's comparing it to The Shining. There's also a typewriter on a shelf, so we reference Misery. With such complete... So much of this is entirely unnecessary. The man in the van is Stephen King, Quinn. <sighs> that would actually be really funny if, like, when Harlan Ellison guested on episodes of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Stephen Why King the just... fuck not at this point? Hello, it's kids. Stephen it's King. me, Steve. <laughs> I decided I'd take a little journey down here from my rural cottage in Maine, where I've been doing a lot of writing lately. And I just wanted to let you know that I think you kids will be making a big splash. Uh, throughout this scene of Jughead poking around in Hiram's study, we work a absolutely pointless false conflict about Jughead going through Hiram's shit, quote, behind Veronica's back, even though we acknowledge in the text immediately after that that going through Hiram's stuff is the exact reason that they're even at Shadow Lake, but we go ahead and have him worry about it anyway. Just right, he's just He's just afraid that Veronica's going to narc on him for some reason. This book is awful. <laughs> we spent so much page count on him worrying about how Veronica's going to feel about him doing the exact thing that they came here to do. The exact thing that they've spent half the goddamn book trying to get here to do. You know what would have been really cool for that page count to be spent on? I don't know, Quinn, what? Investigation! <laughs> No, we can't do that. They're not allowed to achieve anything. This is interstitial between two, uh, uh between two seasons. Ah, uh, Veronica shows up and admonishes Jughead to make sure not to leave a trace. He agrees, and then something weird happens. Veronica points out to him that he has drawn a little crown in the condensation on a window with his finger. The Jughead section here ends with, I didn't know if I could promise no more crowns, though, for one simple reason. I hadn't been the one to draw that crown in the first place. If this is a weird and potentially dangerous thing or a sign that someone's been in here pff, trying to frame Jughead for something, like, what in the fuck are we doing not having the characters talk about it to each other? That's very, very weird. It makes no sense. But the mystery must stand, for we switch to Josie. Josie and the Pussycats are graffitiing the layer of Venom. But Venom Watch must stay silent right now, because nothing happens. No, there's absolutely nothing that actually happens here. They have temporary spray paint, for some reason. Yeah, what's up with that? It's like, we want to be bad and do graffiti, but not, like, be bad and do graffiti. 
they then decide to go to Pops and dance on the counter? <laughs> that that's they 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 make a that I don't know something about that seems really spontaneous to me but they literally make a plan to go to Pops and dance on the counter why what Josie ignores a text message and that's the end of the section why is this section in the book this was actually nothing I think you know how sometimes you read a book and you can tell that an author had like an image in their head that they were just trying to work toward <laughs> Like, I just needed to get to this. And I feel like Nicole Ostow may have been haunted by by, uh, by this little this little passage. Dancing on tables is a classic, sure, but we know counters are great, too. Sort of coyote ugly, with less white girl nonsense, and not even ironically ugly. <sighs> that just renders all of it fucking moot? You could just say dancing on the counters. I Why saw a movie, guys. These... I'm thinking about it. Like, why are these 16-year-olds familiar with, like, relatively early Diablo Cody work? <sighs> now it's text messages time. Cheryl is asking Josie if she's seen Sweet Pea on behalf of Tony, who is worried about him due to their shared being in the Serpent Gang dealio. I just want to point out that these Cheryl text messages are, like, a lot. They're all quite dense. And she sends four of them in a row. I would feel pretty concerned if I opened up my phone and saw those messages. Like, just that many messages of that much text. There's a complex emergency level of text avalanche. Right, but half of it is her just saying, like, you get it, girl. Mm-hmm. It just, just fills up a page, though, doesn't it? <sighs> Dilton Doily texts Sweet Pea, impatient to hear from Sweet Pea's contact, and Sweet Pea tells him to chill. And Dilton gets a message from Penny Peabody. So this whole subplot was concerning Dilton Doily getting connected to Penny Peabody. But we don't know why just yet. Clearly, we must be left in suspense. Uh-huh. <sighs> Chapter 17, Veronica, right off the bat, we're hitting that anti-humor humiliation kink. It was almost funny how obviously guilty Jughead looked, pillaging my father's study behind my back, given that the whole point of this trip to the lake was to pillage for evidence. Beyond even the almost funny, he looked guilty, obviously guilty, but what he was doing was the whole point. Like, again, we're just acknowledging in the text how what the text is saying doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Almost funny, she thinks to herself again, and then talks about her dad being a villain. And Once Daddy decided that Archie's very existence was merely collateral damage amidst our ongoing personal war of the roses, well, that was the exact moment and it ceased being funny to the extent that it ever had been in the first place. Haha. <laughs> This was even longer than usual. This was a good half page. Yeah. Uh, also, got to bring up War of the Roses. Pretty, pretty reachy for a, for a metaphor there. Like, there are not two noble houses at war with each other here. It's one rich asshole against a teenage boy. I feel like Kramer versus Kramer might have been less of a reach. Uh-huh. Uh... But yeah, also, it's really important to note that, like, even outside, like, the, the flash of there being more humiliation kink here, what we're actually getting here is a goddamn recap of Veronica's perspective on the scene where she and Jughead briefly spoke in Hiram's study. We're just, Quinn, we're just going to do this forever, aren't we? Everyone we're just these... going to, like, everyone is going to do something and then, like, split off from each other so that we can just describe it as many well, times as we want. I, I said this on a... I said this on an episode of the Anime Psychos podcast that I guested on recently, and that's these chapters in this book have the exact same format as episodes of the, the anime One Piece. And it's why you should read the manga, because they don't do this, where every episode starts with, like, the theme song, and then there's, like, six to eight minutes of recap 
from what happened in the last episode. And then there's a brief passage of new content. And then there's a passage of content that is all going to be summarized when you start trying to watch the next episode. <sighs> and that is exactly the structure of these chapters. Yeah, it is. Uh, Veronica muses on various expensive features of the cellar. Oh my god, this is fucking interminable. While deciding what ludicrously expensive wine to steal from her dad. I hate this section. And then she fucking summarizes what has happened since the end of the power outage. Which was, I don't even fucking know how many pages ago, because we had to go through the power outage a second time and do a second flashback. If and we then, account just... And then and then have Betty talking to Jughead, and then the same conversation from Jughead's perspective, then Jughead going to the study, and then the same thing from Veronica's perspective. It's fucking unbelievable. And then what Veronica does is she fucking summarizes what has happened since the power outage. Since the, since the moment that there was some chance that the story would advance, let me just recap you all on what happened. She then discovers that one of the security cameras is not functional, carefully noting to the reader that, knowing her father, footage of the night Cassidy was murdered would not be stored here where she could find it. Like, the author is literally telling us, please don't expect these characters to achieve what they set out to achieve or for anything to actually happen. Like, she's priming us for that. The bad camera is the one that covers the front porch, like, front entrance area, and would have shown the identity of the murderers. Dun-dun-dun! Maybe somebody deactivate it somehow, on purpose. And that's what we're left with for this section. Now, again, they arrive at Lodge Lodge on page 139. It is page 215 that Veronica discovers the f malfunctioning security camera. So, if the story picks up now, if we actually do something now that there is a outage with the camera, that means that the time between their arrival at Lodge Lodge and the story doing anything is 76 pages, 26.8% of the entire book. Oh, sweet fuck. Uh, I did a thing. Uh, I may be committed a sin. It depends on how much of a purist you are. Um, Want to know how many pages there are until the end of section two? The end of the Shadow Lake section the of the book? Because, like, like, the first one was the party, right? Yes, I'm pretty sure the second is Shadow Lake. Let Shadow me... Lake? How many pages do we have left, Quinn? Okay. Yeah, part two, the lake house. Right, okay, like... If anything's gonna happen... Right. We've got a tight 22. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> the thing is, you you sort of, like, theorized that they were going to get scared away. Like, they were going to get spooked. Like, yeah. they just weren't going to be able to achieve anything. But that was way too optimistic, Quinn. Because that would mean that, like, there would still be a lot of pages left when they left Shadow Lake. Because I feel like in a competently written story, uh, this would have been one of the first things that happened. Like, because I feel like they were going down to disable the security system, and while they're there with the security system, they should have been like, what's up with the cameras? Yeah, but no, absolutely not. We've got a million pages. <laughs> and we have 22 more. <laughs> yeah, just 22 left for something to happen at Shadow Lake. Holy shit, it is... Uh... <laughs> Fuck this fucking book. It's actually just, like, nothing happened in the day before. But this is way worse. Just the contempt that it has for the idea of storytelling. <laughs> Fuck. Also, we're getting on to chapter 18. There's like 32 chapters in this book. Yeah, obviously the rest of the book is basically just white space. 
What was the first part of the book then, Rob? I don't know. Don't ask me questions that are going to hurt me to answer, Quinn. But that's the that's the section. God <sighs> help us all. God help us all. Thank you for joining me, Quinn. I feel the same combination of uh, a deepening sense of friendship and guilt like I do every time. Same. Same. This is, this is you know, this podcast isn't just something that we do together. It's something that Ostow does to us. Well, that we let Ostow do to yeah. us, I suppose. Yeah. The abyss is gazing back into us. Oh, absolutely. <sighs> well, for for River Do's and River Don'ts by way of pros and cons, I've been Rob, a Nietzschean monster. I've been Quinn, a Cronenbergian abomination. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye.